0: Hi, I'm BT Newberg of the brand new podcast, The History of Sex. We explode gender norms by exploring their incredible variety across time. In today's culture of gay marriage, trans rights, and a new politically correct term every day, things can feel a little chaotic. It makes you long for the good old days. When men were men and women were women, and nothing could be more clear, right? Well, sorry to break it to you, but... Those days never existed. If there's one thing the history of sex teaches us, it's that sex and gender have varied fantastically across different eras and cultures. For example, did you know that the Nazis encouraged young women to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland? Or that pre-contact Hawaii had no such thing as marriage? Or that ancient Romans had no concept of orientation, only a vague sense of preference for one sex or the other? That's the kind of stuff that we'll be covering in our new podcast, The History of Sex. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts, The History of Sex. Welcome to Pax Britannica, episode 30, the Siege of San Martín. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Before we begin, let me just say that sound education was amazing. I met a load of wonderful people, people I've listened to for years, as well as people I'd never heard before. If you're interested in the full story, go listen to the extra episode, the sound education experience. One of those wonderful people that I've listened to for years was, of course, Mike Duncan, who sat down with me for an interview while we were both at Harvard. We had a great chat, and if you've listened to the interview, you'll already know that we talked about all kinds of things, not least the kingdom kerfuffle which is now brewing. Finally, welcome to everyone who is listening to this show right now, just because Mike mentioned it on Revolutions. I hope you enjoy it. So, last time in the narrative, Charles summoned and then dismissed the second parliament of his reign. He had summoned it purely out of necessity. His three kingdoms were at war, and the expedition, which had attempted to capture the Spanish port of Cadiz, had failed catastrophically. It had been a gamble, made by both Charles and his favourite, the Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers, to wow the English Parliament with a grand victory. They had hoped that they could point to a successful raid and say, look, Look at what we did with only a tiny amount of money. Imagine what we'll do when you give us more money. Unfortunately for Charles, it hadn't been a success, and so when Parliament imagined what Buckingham would do with even more money, well, it it hardly made them want to open the kingdom's purse strings. Worse, Parliament had taken aim squarely at the Duke of Buckingham. He had already been toxic to the monarchy, due to his blatant corruption, impropriety, diplomatic incompetence, etc., etc. But now, he could add military blunder to his list of experiences. Despite the king repeatedly warning Parliament not to try and impeach the duke, Parliament tried to impeach the duke, and so Charles dissolved Parliament with little to show for it. Now, that's all very well, Charles managed to protect his favourite, but he was still left in a bind. He was still at war with the Habsburgs, but had no taxation to pay for it. And this wasn't a war he could step away from, this was a family affair. His brother-in-law and sister had been exiled from their palatinate, which was set to be annexed by the Habsburgs, and his uncle, Christian IV, King of Denmark and Norway, was leading forces in Central Europe. At the Battle of Luther, Christian was defeated and cried out to his nephew for support. Aside from familial responsibilities, he had alliances to uphold, with the Dutch especially, and don't forget that there was a mercenary company dispatched by his father James, traipsing through Europe that needed to be paid. So, the long and the short of it is, Charles had to fight this war, and so he had to find a way to pay for it. Charles's Privy Council settled on a tried-and-tested method of raising revenue – forced loans. This had been used by monarchs for centuries, and for centuries it had been hated. While forced loans were a classic form of royal prerogative, they had never followed so closely to a failed bid for parliamentary taxation A forced loan is exactly what it sounds like. In the name of assisting Protestant forces against Catholic aggression, an amount equal to around five subsidies was extracted from the king's English subjects with vague promises of repayment. Royal proclamations were made across the kingdoms, church ministers preached of the noble cause, And aristocrats and officials loyal to the king's cause were dispatched to collect the funds that would surely flow out of willing hands. And at first, that's exactly what happened. Spain had attempted to invade England three times in living memory, and there was genuine sympathy for Protestants on the continent, even if they followed a different sect or two. But soon, resistance reared its head. Judges refused to give the government a blank cheque, pun intended, on its legality. A Chief Justice had to be replaced, as did Lord Lieutenants and Justices of the Peace, who refused to collect payments or enforce the law. Soon, people began being put in chains. Over 70 gentlemen refused to make the payments, and in so doing, denied a royal decree, and so, were arrested. After they were imprisoned, they were refused bail on the order of Charles. Five knights contested both the legality of their imprisonment and the refusal to grant bail, petitioning the King's Bench for a writ of habeas corpus. The Attorney-General's reply, signed by two Privy Councillors, denied their request, and stated that they were to be imprisoned by the command of the king the trial of the five knights case as it came to be known ended with the judgment that common law had no authority over the king's prerogative but as kishlansky puts it quote the five knights case raised fundamental legal questions could the king raise money without parliamentary consent and could he imprison his subjects without showing cause for the moment, both had been answered affirmatively. End quote. Even with this resistance, the forced loan was something of a windfall for the Treasury. Over £240,000 was collected. It wasn't as much as Charles could receive through the usual channels, but it was something, and it was enough for another roll of the dice. Charles and Buckingham would have to make it count, because every penny had been bought and paid for with the goodwill of his subjects. For many, the king had infringed on both established precedent as well as legal rights to property and liberty, and this would come back to bite him. So, let us take another look at the international scene. The Stuart Kingdoms were still at war with the Habsburgs, both the Spanish and the Austrians. Both were significant threats on land and sea, and the war wasn't going well against either of them. So I know what you're thinking. You know what Charles needs to do? That's right, he needs to start another war, and with his brother-in-law. The Anglo-French relationship was firmly lodged in the toilet. It had started out so well, just a year or two before it had been agreed that they would join forces in a war against the hated Habsburgs, and this alliance would be forged in marriage. Charles married Henrietta Maria, the French princess, and sister to Louis the Thirteenth. She had made a good impression on her arrival in England, and aside from refusing to participate in a Protestant coronation. Which was itself a big deal, all seemed more or less peachy. By this point, though, things had become icy on both the international stage and in the royal apartments. Cardinal Richelieu, the leading statesman in the French court, had lied through his teeth. The Anglo French alliance against the Habsburgs, dead before it began, with a secret treaty of peace. The English ships that were meant to be used against Spanish allies in Italy, and had been explicitly promised for that purpose? Well, they had been used against Protestant Huguenot rebels. The relationship between the king and his new queen was no better, and the deeply personal nature of early modern politics meant that affairs of state impacted their relationship as much as the reverse was true. Aside from Henrietta Maria refusing to take part in the coronation, which, again, was a big deal, it had been promised in her marriage treaty, her public Catholicism was a constant source of upset. The Queen also had to vie for her husband's attention with, you guessed it, the Duke of Buckingham. Buckingham saw the young Queen as a threat to his influence over Charles – and sought to neutralise her by replacing her French companions and retinue with one of his choosing. Henrietta Maria had no interest in letting this happen. She was a princess of France. She was the queen of England, Scotland, and Ireland. He was an upjumped knight. He was nothing to her, so she resisted. Henrietta Maria often denied Charles his marriage rights, that is, refusing to sleep with him, which was a source of both personal as well as political difficulty. A king had to have an heir. Most of her French household was expelled in August 1626, partly due to this political battle behind the scenes and partly for diplomatic reasons. For his part, Charles reneged on some of his marriage promises too, Such as leniency for Catholics. All this combined meant that, for the next two years, the royal relationship was on the rocks. It was only with the sudden removal of the Duke of Buckingham that matters improved, but that's for another time. All this time, La Rochelle on the Atlantic coast of France remained in the control of French Protestant rebels and under siege by royal soldiers. Cardinal Richelieu had also begun the construction of a large French fleet, which was particularly concerning for the Stuart crown. Matters came to a head when a French ship, laden with trade goods for Spain, was seized by the English. The French government demanded the vessel be released, and when this demand was refused, an entire English wine shipment harboured in Bordeaux was itself seized. In retaliation for that, an English fleet was dispatched by Buckingham to patrol the French coast and capture any ships from France and Spain. Buckingham sent agents, such as the diplomat and spy Walter Montagu, to assess the appetite of France's neighbours for an alliance. He particularly sought the support of the duchies of Savoy and Lorraine. Savoy straddled the Alps, while Lorraine bordered the Low Countries. The aim of this policy was to encircle France and combine this outside intervention with internal dissenters, namely the Protestant Huguenots and the French nobility, which was opposed to the rule of Richelieu. Together, the duplicitous cardinal would be deposed and France would meet its international obligations. It didn't go quite like that, however. The first step had to be made by England if the other parties to the strategy were going to be encouraged to join in, and so the money gained from the forced loan would be put to good use. Buckingham also spent from his own pocket to try and ensure the mission's success. What mission was this? Well, A combined naval and military expedition was assembled, supplied, and armed to a much higher standard than the dregs that had sailed to Cadiz. Taking personal command of the fleet, the Duke of Buckingham sailed to relieve the siege of La Rochelle. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show, historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On the 12th of July, 1627, Buckingham's fleet arrived off the coast of the island of Ray. The overall strategy was fairly straightforward. The citadel of San Matan would be captured and give the English control of the island. This would act as a beachhead for further advances, but more importantly would open a hole in the royalist siege lines, and allow the city of La Rochelle to be reinforced and resupplies. That was the plan, at least. After the first troops were landed on the island, they immediately came under attack by French cavalry but by the 17th the citadel was under siege, surrounded by land and sea. This state of affairs continued until September, and the garrison was wavering in its resistance. But on the mainland, Cardinal Richelieu had arrived, and oversaw the royal forces personally. On his orders, a fleet of small boats broke through the English blockade with food for the starving defenders. This was the turning point. Before this, Buckingham could have received the fortress's surrender in weeks or even days. Now, the prospect of months more gruelling siege as the seasons turned and the weather became worse was bleak. The arrival of a small number of reinforcements from the British Isles wasn't enough to ensure a successful siege, and his officers strongly advised him to abandon the attempt before the worst of winter arrived. To say that Buckingham had a lot riding on capturing San martin is an understatement. Parliament had already tried to have him removed from office, and there was no guarantee that that would be the end of his punishment. The use of English ships his ships as Lord Admiral, to attack the Huguenots was a stain on his reputation that he could only clean by saving the Huguenots. He decided that if he could not wait out the Citadel, then he would take it by storm. Buckingham ordered an assault on the walls, and he really should have quit while he was ahead. The attack failed. Storming a fortress was always a costly and risky affair, and all manner of factors could have prevented a Buckingham victory. But in this case, it was either bad luck or incompetent planning, because it appears that many of the ladders used by the attackers weren't tall enough to scale the walls. And you'd think, wouldn't you, that after several months sat outside some walls, you'd have a good idea how tall they were, but apparently not. When the assault was called off, thousands of Buckingham's troops lay dead or were captured. With no other options, the Duke ordered a retreat, only to find that their route back to their ships had been blocked by a French force fresh from the mainland. At risk of being encircled themselves with Saint Martin in their rear, the Allied force broke through. This too left many soldiers and officers behind either dead on the field or captured. But Buckingham reached his ships, and he sailed away. He had left England at the head of nearly 8,000 men. He returned with less than half that number. So, let us recap. Charles had called a parliament in order to receive taxation to fund a war against Spain. They had criticised the Duke of Buckingham and offered taxation in return for his impeachment. Charles dissolved Parliament and raised the amount they had offered through forced loans. These were unpopular and stoked fears that Charles would try and rule without Parliament. The money from these very unpopular forced loans was then spent on another military expedition, this time against France and directly led by Buckingham this expedition had been another monumental failure. Oh, and now the Stuart kingdoms were in a war with France, as well as the Habsburgs, and Charles still had no money. Next time, Charles will be forced to call his third parliament in four years. It would be the most volatile parliament of Charles's reign, until, of course, we reach the wars of the three kingdoms. A relatively short episode this week, apologies for that, I'm catching up after two weeks of travel. If you're looking for something else to listen to, try out The History of Sex. It's been many months in the making, and I've been pestering its host, BT Newberg, for a release date ever since we had our talk about podcasting back in May. It's absolutely worth a listen, I'm sure you'll love it. Thank you to my wonderful House of Lords. The Royal Headsman, executed today. Her Grace, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, His Grace, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin. The Most Honourable, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer. The Right Honourable Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens. Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley. Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan. Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner. Countess of Cornwall, Belinda Clarence. Earl of Hereford, Christopher Remo. The Earl of Dunbar, Angus Wilson. The Earl of Northumberland, Michael Thomas the Earl of Southampton, Alan Goldstein, the Earl of Northampton, Justin Drowns, the Earl of Nottingham, John Tugood, the Earl of Leicester, Jim De Bois, Stephen, Earl of Warwick, the Earl of Bradford, Richard Little, the Countess of Clarendon, Mandy Wright, David, Earl of Montgomery, Earl of Derby, Jonathan Musselman, the Earl of Carlisle, Ian Lester, as well as all of my barons and viscounts. If you want to join their ranks, go to patreon.com slash PaxBritannica. Every pledge tier comes with an ad-free feed, and the higher ranks come with extra perks. Remember that you can follow me on Twitter, at SamuelHume10, and the podcast itself, at BritannicaPax. If you really enjoy the show, please recommend it to a friend, or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.